Well, good morning again. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4, where we will continue this morning to examine this concluding, there are these concluding verses rather, wrapping up the book of Colossians. We've been working through this segment of Colossians, and we're at verse 12 and 13, and I want to take some time today to continue unpackaging the meaning of these verses and the significance of the ministry of Epaphras, the pastor at Colossae. And so that will be the focus this morning of our study. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we love you. Thank you for abiding with us. Thank you for holding us fast. These are comforting thoughts for us and speak to the care and the tenderness that you have towards us. And we rejoice that you see us that way, that you do those things for us, that you are not one who holds grudges and keeps long lists of failures, who is bitter and angry towards us and carries out spiteful vengeance, but rather you are a loving shepherd who graciously laid down your life for us and by doing so brought us into a glorious rest that is forever. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for the word that you've given to us that communicates these important truths. And may to, today, as we study your word, we be reminded of all that you have done for us in providing um, these significant characters from the Bible, um, various lives and various personalities, um, people who were devoted to you and made sacrifices to proclaim the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for the testimony of these faithful witnesses. We praise you, Lord, that we today, some 2,000 years, can know about them and that you, in your sovereign purpose and plan, have preserved their names for us. We look forward to meeting them someday, and in that context, we look forward to your return and in the meantime, Lord, may we continue to do the work that you've called us to do. May we be faithful servants um, who are prepared for your return, who are looking forward to it, and in anticipation of it, continue to do the work that you have given to us. We praise you this morning for all that you have done for us. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for our sanctification. Thank you for our preservation. Thank you for our perseverance. And we praise you, Lord, for our future glorification to which we look forward to. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Colossians chapter 4. Let's begin with verse 2 just to get context back. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us the door of the word for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information, for I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, 
they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings and also Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings always send you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Well, we have taken the time to um, unpackage up to this point the characters that Paul has listed for us in this passage. It's significant, of course, that God in his providence has preserved these names for us through all the ages, some 2,000 years removed from their existence. We read about them this morning in Beloit, Ohio. That is significant. And there's certainly things that God wants us to understand about them and to learn from them. These people are given to us as examples. They are faithful witnesses of the gospel. And certainly we can be both encouraged and instructed by what they did. Today, we're going to be looking more closely at Epaphras, who I find to be just a fascinating character. And I've entitled this message, Pastoring 101, because that's what Epaphras was. He was a pastor, and I think he was a very good pastor, and I think we can learn much from him, especially in an age in which pastors aren't often what they ought to be or what they are delegated to be according to Scripture. They're oftentimes mere entertainers, hucksters, clowns, jokers, entertainers of all sorts, and that's not what we are called to be. And so for you, as the redeemed of Christ, you need to know what a pastor is to do and what they are called to do. And Epaphras gives us a great example of the model of a good pastor, a pastor who is faithful to the Word of God and who has a great care and concern for those whom God has placed under his shepherding care. And so Paul again mentions this founding pastor of the church in Colossae, who we know as Epaphras. We first learned about him at the beginning of this epistle, some five years ago, perhaps. No, I'm kidding, it was four. Um, he was first mentioned in chapter 1, verse 7, where Paul commends him for his faithful service as the pastor noting that he was an effective minister of the gospel. Let's go back by way of reminder and look again what Paul had to say. And, and any accolade from Paul is, is worthy of note. Paul was not one to pass on accolades easily, um, and he certainly here notes Epaphras's effective ministry. Let's go back and... Let's begin with verse 3 because it gives us a flavor of the church that, passed, that was pastored by Epaphras. In verse 3 of Colossians 1, Paul writes, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. 
because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So we know right away that Epaphras is pastoring a mature church, apparently growing under his ministry, growing through the preaching of the word of God, the effective uh, uh, exegesis, if you will, the explanation, the, the presentation of the gospel, so much so that God uses it and blesses it, and as a result, we have a congregation that is noted for their faith, hope, and love as a result of them being immersed into the word of truth, the gospel, which Epaphras faithfully ministered. He says in verse 6, which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. That's a phrase I'm going to be coming back to. It's an important phrase, especially the emphasis in truth. That's an important thing. Verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, which Paul calls him again in chapter 4, who is, a, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. And so we have this introduction to Colossians that really emphasizes the effective ministry of a pastor who is given over to the whole counsel of God's Word. Indeed, he is doing exactly what Paul would say his goal was in Colossians 1.28, and that is to make every man complete in Jesus Christ. And we see that. And so when you wonder what does that look like, what does that mean, it means what Paul has just described. People who have been presented with the Word of God, with gospel emphasis, who have been taught the things of God, the truth, where God's grace has been explained, resulting then in a transformation of hearts through the effective ministry of the Holy Spirit that blesses the consistent, accurate preaching of the Word of God. And so Epaphras is noteworthy for that. And we ought to take note of it because he stands in stark contrast to so many pastors that we see today that are foisted upon us in so many different arenas um, and through different mediums. Sadly, we rarely see this. This is the exception. It's not the rule, and it's to be lamented. And it's a, it's a judgment on the church because it is your responsibility to keep good men in the pulpit and get the bad ones out. That rests with you. That is your call. You are to be discerning. You are to be hearers of the Word of God and to be able to test what the person says to make certain that, the, like, like the Bereans, that it squares with Scripture, that it squares with Scripture. And so Epaphras is really a very good model. My prayer is that people would be more attentive to these issues and these needs because the church is, is, is languishing under the weight and burden of a lot of jokes or jokers and clowns out there, guys who dress up like clowns to witness to the circus, as my dad used to say, not doing anything other than just leading people who are going awry and astray. But, Paul, but Epaphras, and again, let's think about the context of the time. Let's think about the age in which Epaphras is pastoring. This is all new. We are, we, are, we are removed in time, in a, in a brief span of time, from the crucifixion of Christ and from His resurrection and ascension. The church is young and new. The Holy Spirit is working. But life is difficult. Life is challenging. Life is hard for these people. 
And again, I think that's important for us to remember. I know I emphasize that a lot, but we can't remove ourselves from the context of the congregation that this message was presented to. And even in spite of the difficulties that they face, they're commended for being people of faith, hope, and love. And that's significant. And they've been shepherd, they've been given a good shepherd who has done a good job in keeping their focus on the things that truly matter, that have eternal consequence. Shepherd was, uh, or rather Epaphras was a shepherd of their souls and he guided them and he guarded them and he protected them and he led them and he fed them in such a way that they grew in the word. And we know that from what Paul says. And so that is to be noted in terms of one of the characters that has been drawn or presented to us here in these concluding verses, verses of Colossian, Colossians. God wants you to know that about Epaphras. God wants you to understand who the congregants were and the setting in which they lived. He wants you to understand the significance of their faithful witness. So you too can be encouraged. So you too can be exhorted. So you too can be challenged. So you too can be instructed in terms of what a faithful congregation looks like and acts like and thinks like and behaves like. That's significant. Don't miss that. All of God's word is given for instruction and counsel and reproof and doctrine. And so here we have that instruction that we're receiving right now as it relates to the faithful ministry of Epaphras. So we have here before us the evidence that Epaphras is a faithful minister of the gospel and what the pastor's role in a church should be, that of a guardian and guiding shepherd of God's flock, the bride of Christ. Well, what can we take away from Paul's description of Epaphras, both here and in chapter 1, is that he was a theologian. I like that. Let's go back. Well, first of all, here in chapter 1, verses 1 or 3 through 8 that we looked at, we see that Epaphras is not presenting his own message. He's not giving a TED Talk. He's, he's not giving some philosophical idea about something. He's presenting God's word to them. And so he is a minister of the gospel, not himself. That's important. We must take note of that. That's what a pastor is supposed to do. A pastor is a theologian. And as a theologian, he speaks of the things of God. That's so critically important. I am not here to entertain you or to amuse you. I love to laugh. You know that. I mean, Ben is King Herod, for Pete's sake. But at the same time, the call of the minister is to be this theologian. That is, one who studies what the Scriptures say and presents what he has learned in his studies in an orderly, clear, and persuasive manner. That's what the pastor theologian does. That's what his calling is. And so when a pastor steps into the pulpit, what you want to see right away is that the word of God is opened. Because the call of the minister of the gospel is to present what God has said and to proclaim what God has said and to do it in such a way that it's understandable and that it brings conviction through the unction and power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're called to do. And so we understand then that Epaphras, based upon what we've read in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, and what we'll find in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, is that Epaphras was a theologian. So what is theology? 
I think this is important because it's a term that I think isn't understood completely in the context of what today is presented as ministry and preaching. Theology is the disciplined discourse about God. The disciplined discourse about yourself. Your best life. Your present needs. No, it is a disciplined discourse about God. We see that Epaphras is doing that. We see in verses 3 through 8 that there is a clear presentation of the gospel, of the word of God, in such a way that it impacts the heart, it impacts the mind. It changes people through the work of the Holy Spirit, and that's what God blesses. And so it's a disciplined discourse about God, which is finally and irrevocably constrained by the Word of God. So, I don't get to leave this. You're you're not going to hear the gospel according to John Tucker. And if you do, you've got a problem because it's not going to save you and it's not going to do anything for you. So, I work within the confines of this, just like when I walk into a courtroom. I I don't give my own opinion about things in the context of the issues before the court and going beyond the law or creating new laws. Oh, by the way, Your Honor, I've got the, the, the statutes according to John. You know, section one, part four, subparagraph A says this. Well, we don't care what you're saying, counselor. Take a seat. I've had that happen. But here the pastor is restrained and, 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 and finds himself within the confines and structure of the Word of God. And this is what Epaphras was doing. It's clear that what Epaphras was doing was that he was engaging in the exegesis, that is the, the careful reading and explanation of God's Word. So when you hear that word exegesis, it means that the pastor or one is carefully reading and, and translating the Word of God. Turn with me. Let's find another amazing pastor in the Bible. Well, how about in the Old Testament? How about in Nehemiah? How about Ezra the pastor? Ezra the pastor, we find, is also a good theologian. He's a student of God's word, and he's engaged in the disciplined discourse about God. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8. We have the people assembled, they're gathered, verse 1, and all the people gathered as one man at the square, which is in front of the water gate, and they ask Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Verse 2, then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read it, he read from it before the square, which is in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. You think I preach long. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attending, attentive to the book of the law. Says that he stood at a wooden podium with other men surrounding him. He opened the book in verse 5 in the sight of all the people. That's important. Ezra opens the book of the law in the sight of all the people because now the people know that Ezra is speaking with authority from God's word, not his own words. And he was standing above all the people because he wanted, he wanted the people to see and to understand and to appreciate 
the fact that he is reading from God's word. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And in verse 8, we find here this important instruction or this important fact about what Ezra was doing. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. That's exegesis. He was exegeting the text. And so he read it to them, and he gave the people a sense of what it meant. What does this mean? How does it apply to your life? It's instruction and application, ultimately, is what we find. And so, too, Epaphras was engaged in that type of ministry and that type of pastoring as a theologian, the disciplined discourse about God. And that discourse is 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 finally and conclusively constrained by the Word of God. The pastor cannot roam, he cannot be a maverick and leave the reservation of God's Word. The confines of God's Word. There's too much of that today. There's very little careful reading. There's very little instruction as to the answers that it the questions that it answers. But here we find that Epaphras, like Ezra before him and other faithful men, explaining to the people what does the text actually say and what did the author mean. Interpretation and application. That's what a pastor is called to do. And it is by that that the Holy Spirit then works in your heart, shaping and forming your mind to work within the structure and the confines of Scripture. You see, we are Christians, and so Christians ought to think Christianly, right? We ought to think biblically. God has given us this amazing book, which, by the way, the Colossians didn't have. They had some things. They had the Old Testament and other letters that Paul had written. That's clear from the text. They had the instruction from Epaphras, who had been taught by Paul, who had been saved under the ministry of Paul in Ephesus. And so we see then that pastoring falls within the confines and the structure of God's Word. You need to know that and appreciate that. The pastor's call is to say, Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, and that's what Epaphras was doing. And so he was, in that way, a faithful minister of the gospel. I like what Paul says in verse 6 of chapter 1. Paul notes that the Colossians' growth in the... He, he notes the Colossians' growth in the grace of God in what? Truth. Truth. The truth, then, is connected to the things that are being proclaimed by Epaphras from the Word of God which affirms that Epaphras was indeed a theologian, not an entertainer, nor a clown, not one mimicking the latest fad, but rather a true and genuine biblical pastor. I like that. I like Epaphras. I can't wait to meet him. I can't wait to talk to him. can't wait to talk to him about his journey to Rome. Can't wait to talk to him about his, inter- his, his, his discourse with Paul and his, his, his discussions with him. 
Can't wait to talk to him about his flock in Colossae and his ministry there. It will be a great conversation. I will know something of it, so we'll be familiar with each other in that way. And that will be a good thing. So Epaphras was concerned for the truth, and it was so profound. I want you to think about this for a minute. Let's not forget the context of all the things that are going on. Epaphras' concern for this flock and for the truth and for their souls and for their eternal state was so profound and deep that he traveled over 1,000 miles to reach Paul regarding the false teacher in Colossae. That's how much the truth matters. That's what's at stake. This is why I'm so amazed at how easily we allow things to come into the church. Error um, of, the, of the most extreme levels, heresy. It, the church is full today of heretical teachings that have been rejected through the history of the church as being heretical, as being unorthodox. As I have noted and lamented, recent polling indicates that most Christians believe that Jesus was created, that he is not the Son of God, that he is not God in the context of what that all means. He's just some created being, a good person. This is a problem. And it's because the, the pulpits are not full of pastors who care about these things and are teaching people God's truth and God's word. Epaphras cared about this congregation. This journey must have been amazing. What a, what a, what a movie that would make. What's significant about this journey and Paul and Epaphras' desire to see Paul, and, and I'm going to take, I guess, a limited poetic license with this because Scripture doesn't give us a lot of detail about what was going on other than that there is a false teacher in Colossae, in the church, who is coming in and teaching basically uh, a, 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 a teaching that's based upon works, a works-based form of righteousness with a sprinkling of mysticism and Gnosticism and some other bizarre temple worship paradigm. Really, really convoluted stuff. But it's bad. And the guy is good at it. We know that from chapter 2. He's persuasive. He's able to speak well. And apparently he may have even convinced some of the error that he was holding to. And so it's likely that Epaphras was going to, to receive further teaching from Paul in regards to being able to explain why this false teacher was wrong and to give further insight into the work and person of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, I think what we find in the epistle is what Paul was explaining to Epaphras would be the response to the false teacher. Epaphras shows up, tells Paul what's going on, and Paul, in response, explains to him now what we find in the book of Colossians. For, what, for some reason, based upon the prompting and leading of the Holy Spirit, Epaphras stays in Rome with Paul, apparently seeing his need as he's a prisoner, apparently even imprisoning himself with him to be able to minister to Paul and to help him in his ministry there. And so rather than returning to the congregation, he stays to aid Paul, seeing the need that Paul would have in that context. And Paul, sensing through the Holy Spirit, Epaphras' great concern, penned the epistle now open before you. This is amazing. 
I, I, honestly, are you, is your mind not blown? Think about this for a minute. I want you to think about it. We're at like an AD 64-ish, right? There's been a massive earthquake in the Lycra Valley. This church is, been, is part of a, on a trade route that's being no longer used by the, Rome, by the Romans. It's been altered. So this is a languishing economy. Epaphras leaves. There's a false teacher there. He leaves. He travels over a thousand miles to Rome. He's saying to Paul, Paul, this is what's going on in the church, and this is what he's teaching. He's talking about worshiping angels and getting uh, very this, these, these utterances and extra words, and he's taking them back under the law, and he's telling them to not touch and not eat and not drink, and he's telling them to observe certain things and festivals and feasts and Sabbaths. What am I supposed to do? And in conversation with Epaphras, Paul takes him back to who Jesus Christ is and explains to him who and what he has done and the fact that we've been reconciled and that we've been delivered into this kingdom of light and all the things attendant with the work of Christ and his deity and all that. Our union with Christ. And he teaches him these things and he writes these things down in a letter which ultimately Tychicus and Onesimus bring back. And now you've got it in your lap. Come on. Are you not amused? <laughs> yes. How wonderful is that? How significant is that? And all here, here, think about all because, all because Epaphras cared about his congregation. You have the epistle of Colossians in your lap. He's a faithful minister to you. He's ministering to you today. Isn't that remarkable? Are you going to hug him when you see him? I hope you will. So this is what we have. Now, now this gets even better. So Epaphras stays. This epistle is penned. Paul writes other epistles, one to the Laodiceans, most likely the Ephesians and the Philippians as well. And these are taken back and dispersed and they're exchanged and, and given back and forth. We know that because we see here from the latter part of this passage that the letter to the Laodiceans, which we don't have, is read to this congregation, as is the letter of Colossians to the Laodiceans. But the question this begs, here's, oh, oh think, think, think of this. I want you to think about I want you to think about in terms of the purpose of Epaphras' journey to Rome, what it wasn't about. He wasn't going to Rome to get aid, financial support, relief for economic distress, food, medicine, or anything other than a clearer explanation and more precise explanation of the work and person of Jesus Christ because that's what they needed more than anything else. Tychicus and Onesimus didn't come back with a caravan of camels and carts full of all sorts of goodies. They came back with a letter written on parchment to be read. That's far better. That was the gravest concern for Epaphras. That's significant. That's unbelievable. This is why I struggle with missions today in some contexts because what do we do? We flood them with all sorts of goodies and God's word is like a side thing. Or it's not anything. No, Epaphras comes 
he gets instruction, the letter is written, it's sent back, and it's read. We'll find out later that it's likely read by the chap at the end of the chapter, Archippus, who is the pastor now of the church in Colossae. So we now understand some things about Epaphras, and we understand the goal and the calling of a faithful pastor. He is a theologian, one who is engaged in the disciplined discourse about God based upon the content of God's Word. But why would Epaphras do this? What is the, what is the motivation for Epaphras? Well, let's look. There are two things that we can find. One, in verse 7 of chapter 1, we're told that Epaphras is a fellow bond servant. In chapter 4, we're also told that about him. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of your number, and here Paul changes the word a little bit. He says, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. That's significant. So the, re- the, the question is, why? Why would Epaphras do this? Well, it's not out of some type of... of, of, of begrudging service, it's because he loves Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in verse 12 that Epaphras was a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And what I want to note here is the emphasis that is placed upon the fact that he says that he is a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say he's a bond slave. He doesn't say he's my buddy. He doesn't say he's just my fellow minister. He says he is a bond slave of someone, of Jesus Christ. That's significant. So what do I understand then about that? What is the motivation? Is he trying to work his way into heaven? Is he trying to get more merit? Does he need more righteousness? No, he's, he's serving these people because he loves the Lord Jesus Christ and he's proclaiming God's word because he loves the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea of a bond slave pictures one whose will is given over to another. So as a bond slave of Jesus Christ, Epaphras was yielding himself to the will of Jesus Christ. Not his own will, but rather the will of the one who had purchased his pardon. As explained in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Let's go back and be reminded. Again, I want you to understand the motivation because Epaphras' motivation ought to be your motivation. We too, like him, are bond slaves. We too are also given over to another one's will, not our own. Why? Because of what Paul tells me has been done for me. Verse 13, For he, this Jesus Christ of whom we are speaking, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He goes on further in this passage, further down, verse 21, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly blood through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So Epaphras appreciates that. He understands that. He's reveling in it. And because of that, he has then given himself over to fully Jesus, to Jesus Christ. 
It's not in a begrudging way. It's not as if we look at this word and say, well, man, he's just a slave. He's just, you know, chained to him, and he's being whipped and beaten, and he's being forced to do something he doesn't want to do. That's not the case at all. The purpose of the, using the word bond slave here, and, and here we're going to exegete the words, so this, is, this is what this looks like, is to demonstrate that, that one has given himself over to another, that your will is no longer your will. Jesus Christ himself referred to himself as a bond servant, as a bond slave. To who? The Father. The will of the Father. It's not my will, it's your will be done. As we recall in the Garden of Gethsemane. Notice as well, again, the emphasis on Jesus Christ. Well, what does Jesus Christ mean? What is the meaning of the words that make up that name? Jesus, we know, means Savior. We know from Matthew 1.21, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We also know this from Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12, where Peter, and you want to turn there with me, we can look at that quickly. Peter here in this amazing discourse Acts 4, 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone, that is Christ, which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Take heed. And so Epaphras understands that. And he understands who Jesus Christ is. Christ is the Messiah. He is the Savior Messiah. He is the promised one. And he gladly gives himself over to him. That's the point. So look at this. So as a bond slave, Epaphras was yielding himself to the will of Jesus Christ. That's significant. And because of that, he was teaching these people the things of God. We know that to be the case from chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. We also know it here from chapter 12. Now let's look what he was doing as the pastor. He, Paul then tells us some additional things about Epaphras. In verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings. Hello, how are you? But he notes this about Epaphras. He says that Epaphras is always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Verse 13, for I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. It's interesting, this word deep concern, now this is important because it gives us context to what he is doing and why he is doing it. This, word, this phrase deep concern means that he's engaged in what would be similar to saying painful toil, exertion laboring hard, exerting himself. 
because he's very concerned about what's going on. What's going on in Colossae? There's a false teacher. There's a false teacher who is taking their eyes off of the finished work of Jesus Christ and their union with him. It's because of that that he is then laboring and toiling earnestly to make certain that these people do not lose sight of Jesus Christ. That they don't lose their hope in Jesus Christ. That their faith is not made shipwreck on the shores of heresy. And that they don't lose their love for Christ and love for each other. And so Epaphras, the faithful pastor, is laboring in the only way that he can because he's not with them. Note this, right? He's with Paul. He's in Rome. He can't be there to preach for them and with them. So he's laboring in only the way that he can, and that is to pray for them. And to pray that those who are with them will keep them from the error that is being taught. This is significant. This is how much the truth matters. Buy the truth and sell it not, we're told. The truth matters. Do you hear me? The truth matters. It matters for all of eternity. Because if the Colossians believe what the false teacher is saying, those who do not know Christ and fall into the error and the trap of the false teacher will perish for all eternity in hell and be separated from God in that context. It matters. The truth matters. Your neighbors need to hear the truth. Your friends need to hear the truth. Your kids need to hear the truth. It matters. And the pastor's call is to guard the flock and to lead them into the truth, not away from it. To point them to Christ, to show them Christ. Like Lloyd-Jones says, Pastor, may they see Christ. Pastors trifle with their flock. I, I fear for the guys around me. I truly do. I see what they're doing. I see the trivial things they engage in. Pastors who put little things on their signs that say, gotcha, or I'm watching you as Jesus peeks around a corner. That's not clever. That's, that's dangerous. That's error. It's not funny. Making other comments about glibly referring to Jesus Christ or, or just making mockery of him. Dressing up, oh, it's just ridiculous, calling him a superhero and all this other stuff that you see in parades and other things. We got souls in our hands. And I'm playing with them. I'm talking to them about superheroes and a little guy who's peeking around a sign. He's the sovereign creator of the world for Pete's sake. He has the right to cast you into hell for all of eternity, and rightly so. And we trivialize it. We play games. Ah, oh, Epaphras loved his people. He labored for them in the only way that he could. He wanted to be with them. Paul would see it. He writes of it. He says he's laboring to the point of exhaustion. It's the context and the picture that Paul is painting. That's how much Epaphras cares for this congregation. Puts his life in peril. A journey of 1,000 miles, nay, I say, a journey of 10 miles back in that day was perilous. But one of 1,000 miles? You've got to be kidding me. I mean, driving to Missouri was 888 miles, and I thought I was going to die. <laughs> Sitting in the back of a 
Chevrolet Caprice Classic with blue velour seats and air conditioning, no less. But no, he cares. He cares so much about them. Epaphras has always labored earnestly in prayer for the Colossians, struggling with great effort. It's an earnest endeavor. He couldn't be with them physically, so he does what he can, and he labors for them in prayer to guard them, praying, God, protect them. Please make them stand. And so we see then that his prayers were with a purpose. It says that, He was always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand, that you may stand perfect and fully assured. This is remarkable. This idea of standing carries with it the notion of a resolute faith which finds victory in life's battles, is able to withstand attack, and is prepared. It's the Christian in complete armor, Ephesians 6. That's the picture. But there's more to it than that. And, and, and unfortunately, I'm out of time. The time has gone so fast. At least it has for me. And so next week, well, not next week, because I have something else for next week since it's Reformation Sunday, but the next time we come back to this passage, Lord willing, in early November... We're going to talk about this issue of what it means to stand and what is Paul talking about when he uses the idea of perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. I cannot wait to get to that. It is super good. Trust me when I tell you. Cliffhanger. So be here for that. And I hope that you have a deeper appreciation for Epaphras the pastor, Epaphras the one who cares about the flock in Colossae, and who has a great concern for their spiritual, eternal well-being. That is so important. That's what pastors must care about primarily. We care about temporal things. We ought to care about temporal things, but they they cannot usurp and overcome the eternal. Because the eternal is what? Eternal. (laughs) And the temporal is what? temporary, temporal. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement we have from this example of Epaphras. Thank you for opening this up to us. Thank you for saving us. Help us to stand and help us to be attentive to the role of the pastor. Thank you, Lord, for bringing pastors. Thank you for the faithful pastors that have been in my life and all the men that you have brought into my life. And I've had the occasion to learn under my dad and so many others, Lord. Thank you for their faithful ministry to me. Without them, I would not be standing here this morning. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.